What do you believe? What do you believe? Welcome to the Kent Lap Podcast. Do not try this at home. Hello, friends. My name is Kent Lap, and welcome to the KLP, where we explore what folks who are successful in their field believe, are building, and enjoy in order to hopefully spark change, bring hope, and help you navigate the tricky bits in life. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to give you my conversation with Paul Winkler. Paul is the president and founder of Paul Winkler Incorporated, a registered investment advisory firm in Nashville, Tennessee. Paul began his career in the financial services industry in 1989, actually, so he's been around. He's also the host of the long-running investor coaching show on Supertalk 99.7, which I suspect you'd have to be somewhat local to hear that, but you might want to check that out. In any case, go to his website, paulwinkler.com. Uh, paulwinkler.com, and you'll get everything you need to know there to follow up in case you're interested in potentially working with him. Uh, it was a great conversation. I'm thrilled to give it to you. But first, uh, check us out on the social channels and particularly YouTube. If you haven't already, just search the Can't Let Podcast on you know, Twitter, Instagram, blah, 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 Facebook, all of them. We're there. Just search the Can't Let Podcast. You'll find us. And then uh, we're on YouTube as well. We've got the full episode posted if you want to watch the videos or just see clips or browse around or whatever. And if you would, subscribe on YouTube. That'd be fantastic. And second, if you're not subscribed to our weekly email newsletter, uh, maybe you'd want to consider that. Just go to kentlap.com and pop in your email, and that's another good way to stay in touch. And I uh, would really appreciate it. So uh, without any further ado, I give you my conversation with Paul Winkler. Please enjoy. <laughs> Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. man. Yeah, Thank you for taking here. the time. I was looking forward to this one. Why don't you tell people who you are and what you do? Okay, so I run an asset management company, financial planning company. I was a broker for 10 years, studied under a guy who won the Nobel Prize for economics. I swore he was going to win the Nobel Prize when I was studying under him. Who was that? I, uh, Gene Fama, Eugene Fama, University of Chicago. And basically what he did was this. He figured out, he said, okay, what do we want when we invest? We want return. How do I know how much money to put away for retirement? I figure out what my expected return is going to be and what return I'll get in retirement, and I can figure out how much income I can take off of the money I save for the future. Mm -hmm. So how do you figure that out? Well, he figured out that there are factors, is what he calls them, that will deliver returns. So if I look at, let's say, large U.S. stocks, historic return in every single 30-year period in all of history is about 10%, every single 30-year period. So money doubles about every seven years. If we look at small companies, about 12, money doubles about every six years. If I put them together, I know expected return somewhere in the neighborhood of 11, you know, give mm. or take, right in between the two of them. Well, he figured out that there are lots of different factors that drive returns, value companies, growth companies, and, and small and large, and bonds and different durations and all this, all this stuff. So if I know what I've got in my portfolio, I could tell you, oh, your expected return is this, and I can measure your risk. Mm -hmm. Well, this was way back, you know, over 20 years ago that I was studying under this guy's, and I was, a, I was a broker, and I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't sell garbage to people anymore. I got to get out of this business. Where were you studying? So I was studying, so these guys were teaching all around the country. So I would drive up to Cincinnati, I would go to St. Louis, I would go wherever they were. I would go and... and were they professors the teaching it yeah. at, at colleges, or yeah. they were they had their own kind of business teaching? So yeah, it was okay. their own little thing that they were doing okay. business wise, and they had a guy. Ken French was a partner of his. A guy named Rexingfield was in there teaching with them. And anytime you see a stock market chart, 
you know, you see Ibbotson and Associates, well, Rex Singfeld was his partner in actually okay. figuring out that data. Okay. So I studied and, and I said, I, I know this guy's going to win the Nobel. I know he's going to win the Nobel. Oh, yeah? And my wife would be like, oh, after about 13 years, would you shut up? <laughs> did, and he did that. And he did. Oh, and he, he finally it, huh? 2013. So yeah. Wow. So it was one of those things I just saw the I saw the light. I saw What the, was the Nobel piece? You said Nobel. Nobel Prize for Price. Economics. Okay. I didn't know there was one. Yeah, there is. So okay. what it was is, is multi-factor and something called market efficiency. That was the other thing that really hit me was, you know, most of people's efforts in investing is, hey, you know, which areas should I be getting into? Which areas of the market should I be getting into? Mm-hmm. You know, what sections or sectors or, or those or which stocks? This company, I really like this company. I do business with them. I think I'm going to buy their stock. I really like them. And in essence, that is nothing but gambling, you know, mm-hmm. because you're assuming that markets are mispricing things, mm-hmm. that a stock is selling for 50. Shh, I know I've studied this company. I know their business model. I know what they do. It's really worth 70. I'm going to buy it for 50. Mm-hmm. And when it goes to 70, which is what it's really worth, we'll sell it. And that's how you make money. That is not how you make money. Mm. And that's in essence what he figured out. He figured out that there is a cost to use your capital, you have to, and it's just really simple. In 60 seconds, I'll get you to get it. If I put money, $100,000 in a bank, and I say, oh, I'm going to put this $100,000 in a bank, and they say, oh, we pay 1% interest at our bank. We're going to pay me $1,000 a year to use my money. Stocks are the same exact way. Go all the way back to the 1920s, you will see that large companies sell for 16 times their earnings. Well, you got $1 for every 100 there. Now turn it over. You got for $1 of earnings for each 16 mm-hmm. that you have paid. One divided by 16 is 6.25%. Earnings grow. They go up and go down, go up and go down, go up and down. Hence the reason the stock market goes up and goes down because earnings go up and go down. Mm. But they grow at about 3% per year if due to nothing else other than what you just, you know, when you talk about inflation, that's what you're talking about, earnings growing because companies got to charge more for stuff. Yeah. The national inflation rate generally is about 3%, right? That's exactly right. Okay. You're going all the way back. So you take six and a quarter and growing at 3%, and you're like, oh, 10%. I get it. That makes sense. That's why returns of the markets are about 10%, right? But really? The, yeah. But why the, in, the investment industry is trying to convince you that it is their brilliance and figuring out which companies are selling for less than what they're really worth. Huh, I've never heard that described that way ever in my life. Oh, neither did I. And I was a broker for 10 years. <laughs> oh, really? I was a broker okay. for 10 years selling so, investments. Yeah. Ah, so he, this, can you remind me of his name? Uh, Eugene Fama. Eugene Fama. And, and Ken French were the two guys. That, okay. Yeah, but they, Fama won the Nobel. Okay. So they, Eugene was the guy that brought this concept to you. Uh, yeah, he and was. That's the first time you heard of it. Yeah, and you were. What were you at that point? You were a CPA. I was a, I was a broker, you, so okay. an investment broker. So typically, you work for a, when you get in the investment business, you work for what's called a broker dealer, uh, and you know, okay. like think Raymond James, Edward Jones, Merrill Lynch. You know, think of you know whatever Schwab or whoever. That's a broker dealer that allows you to sell product. So, you know, anytime you do business with investment people, that's typically what you're dealing with is a broker dealer. Well, I was working for a big broker dealer. And mm. what happened was they, they, were, they were closing down. They were going bankrupt because somebody had sued them. Uh, so what ended up happening is I was like, I got to leave. And, and the compliance lady there, the, the, the attorney that worked for him said, Paul, she says, you've been studying under these guys, these academics you ought to go out and do your own thing and become a registered investment advisor. And I said, great, what's that? Well, she says, you actually work for the client. You don't work for the investment firm anymore. 
So now when you give advice, it will be you're representing your client and you're guiding them through this maze of stuff out there. And, and that's how it works. I see. And that was your introduction to basically Paul Winkler Incorporated? Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's when you struck out on your own? That's when I and went And you've out. been on your own ever since? Yeah. Okay. Now we're up 10 offices. Yeah. So I saw that. You have a lot of offices around. Now, is that because you, is that because the, the nature of what you do, people want to see someone in person or why, why, why can't you just have like one office and just do it? You know, through the internet or phone or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you're dealing with people that'll come in and go, oh, I need to have some help on this. I've got this 401k and I need you to help me fixing my 401k. I need, I've got a mortgage. I'm trying to think about, do I buy a house? Do I rent a house? Okay. Do I do a Roth IRA? And you know what? It's as, as much as technology advances, we are a face-to-face -face world. Yeah, and people. But like, you can't replace that. No, nah. that's why we only do this in person. Yeah, so, I mean, man. If, this, if you were on Skype right now, I mean, first of all, I'd be cutting in and out probably, and then we'd have tech problems, and you can't pick up on like the nuance and the details. So no, I'm a, I'm a big like in person person. Yeah. I just think you can't replace it now. Zoom and tech and phone. I mean, that, that all obviously the internet has its place and it's here to stay. Yeah. But I agree with you on the in person thing. But I was curious why you had those offices kind of in Middle Tennessee. Um, and I think you just answered the question because people do want to come in and shake someone's hand and talk to someone in person. Yeah, and okay. the footprint of the of the radio station that I do a, a, my my work in literally goes up from down from Alabama all the way up through Kentucky. So okay. it's a pretty big, big footprint. People so. drive. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, they they don't want to drive too far though. You know, okay, sure. They might go to Columbia from Alabama or, you know, something right. like that, but they're not going to drive all the gotcha. way Gotcha. Okay. Can you talk through then for the listeners kind of what they, they heard you say, kind of money management, 10 offices, Middle Tennessee, but give some more color on like what it is that you're doing and how you're helping people here now. So somebody comes in and they say, hey, here's what I'm, I'm doing. Here's what my investments are. I typically act like a doctor in a way where the doctor goes, hey, here's what you got going on. Here are the problems and here's where it leads if mm -hmm. you continue this process. So typically, anytime you're in business, what are you doing? You got to solve a problem and you've got to find a pain point, so to speak, or where things are not going right and where you can fix that. So in essence, that's the first step. And then what we'll do is we'll go in and look at, uh, let's say they've got you know, retirement plans, 403Bs, 401Ks, IRAs, or whatever, and fixing those types of things. How much do I need to accumulate for retirement? Well, when are you going to retire? How much income are you going to take? Is your goal to leave some money to your kids? Uh, if you have kids, grandkids, um, how, lo how long are you going to work full-time? You might work full-time, and then you may work part-time for a while in retirement. You may phase out What's your social security benefits? What are your and people say social security is not going to be there. And I said, no, actually, you hear that? Oh, all the time. Really? All the time. People, people actually believe that. Yeah, especially younger people do not believe it will be there, and older people even believe it because the trust fund's going broke. People are basically saying the trust fund twenty thirty four is broke. Mm -hmm. And most people don't even know what a trust fund is. But in essence, what it was is for many, many years, you'd have 100 people working for every one person on Social Security. Mm -hmm. So you got all this money coming out of people's paychecks, you know, being set aside, and then you got one person collecting. Well, now it's down to less than three people working for every one person on Social Security. <sighs> 
Yeah. Now you see. It went from 100 to 1 yeah. to less than 3 to 1? Yeah. So over what period of time? So it's over the past about 30, 40 years it has. Oh, my gosh. That is so dramatic. Drastic. It is dramatic. So for years, you had so much money coming out of people's paychecks and hardly anybody collecting that they said they built up this trust fund, which right. is a bunch of money that they didn't need right away. What they invested in? Government bonds. What's a government bond? That's where government spent money that they didn't have, right? Mm -hmm. So the government borrowed the money. And what they've got going on right now is now they're having to repay those IOUs. Mm -hmm. And they figure it's all going to be gone. The IOUs are going to be gone. And Social Security is on a totally separate balance sheet than our federal government. So our government has you know, a budget, right? Social Security is its own deal. It is a totally separate thing. So they can't go and take regular tax money to pay for, pay for people in Social Security. I see. See, that's what the problem is. Okay. But there are a lot of potential fixes for those that don't think that it's going to be there. You know, we could raise taxes. We could increase their, you only pay social security taxes up to a certain income level. If your income goes over about 130,000, you're not paying social security taxes anymore. Well, they I could raise that, that a little yeah. bit. You yeah. see what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of potential things. So I used to kind of think that too. And I was raised um, Mennonite. And oh, the yeah. Amish and Mennonites have a, can have a social security exemption. Mm -hmm. And I don't have mine anymore, but I had one at one point. And I was happy about that. I'd rather just have not paid in and kept it and invested myself and took care of myself later and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't have the luxury of that anymore. But, I mean, it seems to me that the feds just seem to be able to print money whenever they want it or need it, right? So couldn't they just print more money for the Remember social security? it's a separate deal. Yeah, it's a, you'd think that, but there's a separate deal, remember? So that they're off on a separate plane than the federal government is. Huh, but 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 the federal government still oversees it, don't, don't they? Or uh, it, They do, Okay. but, but it is, it's, and Congress would have to change what I'm talking about. Uh, okay. They would have to, and gotcha. there, there has been proposal that maybe they do that, so it's okay. a possibility. It just seems like... It just seems like if all these people are retiring, they, the government has to get them Social Security, right? I mean, it would just seem like that would be, it would almost be like the end of something significant, trust in a government or, I mean, all these people would be out of income and, I mean, that would be a disaster. Like, yeah, it, it can't. That, yeah. that, that wouldn't happen, right? Politically, it would be suicide. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. So that's why I don't believe it's really going to go away. Okay. But, you know, as you just said something about, about being Social Security, and that's what you said was really, really important. You were able to exempt out of it. Social Security is set up so that if you have low income, you get a high replacement of your income. So, you know, for if you, they, they take a look at 35 years of your income history and they bring it up to your age of retirement, around 60 is what they bring it up to is age 60. And then what they do is they go, okay, so let's say you earned 100,000. Let's just use it as a number. What they'll do is they'll say, oh, your first $10,000 of historical income that you earned, we'll replace that at 90%. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, so for a low income person, it replaces a ton mm, of their working income. Sure. Yep. Your next 50,000 of income approximately is replaced at 32%. Big drop, right? I see. And then everything above that is 15%. So what happens is if you're that person that's 100,000, you don't have a high percentage. So mm -hmm. those people that have higher incomes, Social Security is not going to replace a whole lot of their income. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. For that reason. And they know that now. And so they're doing other things like talking with you and investing yeah. wisely so that they can have a decent quality of life after they stop working if they ever choose to stop. Um, 
which one day I guess we all will at some point, whether we choose to yeah, or not. Yeah, may not be able to. Um, that's right. The 100 to 1 or 3 to 1 is yeah. blowing my mind because Something. I knew it was drastic. I knew it was different. I did not know it was that drastic. I mean, yeah. that, is, yeah. that is very significant. Now, is that because of the workforce is lower or is that because of the baby boomer generation moving through or a combination? What's behind that? It's worldwide. What's happening worldwide, you look at France and they're they're panicking. China's even panicking. A lot of countries around the world because their populations are aging so much and they're not replacement. The replacement ratio, how many kids people are having is too low to actually replace existing population. So Japan went through this in a huge way and it was terrible for them. Where Japan, we thought they were gonna take over the world in the 1980s. You know, it was anything, oh, Japan's gonna wipe out the US, you know, you might as well forget it. And where will Japan strike next was the cover of a magazine. Well, what happened was that their aging population created a situation where they didn't have new people coming in. Hmm. And from an economic standpoint, you got a bunch of retirees on fixed income and no younger people to replace them. Their economy went backwards. So they had a huge drop in their stock market, 63 percent in 1989 to put that in perspective. So, yeah, it was wow. huge. Yeah. So replacing the population is a big deal. How is America tracking? We are not that bad. We're, we're not that bad. But one of the things that's helping us, quite frankly, is immigration and people coming in from other countries. Mm. Uh, we, we are slow. Last year was a super slow year as far as number of new children born. It's actually quite reduced, but not as bad. But it is an issue. Hmm. Now, how that's interesting to hear that, because mostly I, th I feel like what you hear kind of culturally or, or at a societal level is about the dangers of overpopulation, the dangers on the environment, like all of these things, like humans are bad for the environment and all of these things. Yeah. But what's missed in that discussion is yeah. economics, long-term big picture at a national level or even a global level, it needs to have, we need to have our population replaced. Yeah. Right? So just have more kids or have kids actually, or well, get those kids in the workforce? Like what is the answer yeah, yeah, there? Yeah, part of it. And some things that countries like France are doing is daycare. You know, for example, you know, you go oh, to work okay. and you have daycare at your work center and, and government paid daycare. And uh, China had mm. for a one child policy forever. You only have one child and that's it. You're done. And now they're going, uh oh, we've got a problem here because we've got an aging population and they're dependent upon younger people, and they're mm -hmm. dependent upon the taxes that younger people pay hmm. is really what it gets down to. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, that, that's a significant problem. Um, can you go back to, seven? did you say at a 10% return, your money doubles every seven years? That's correct. And what did you say doubles every six years? That's or small companies. Okay. Yeah, that's small companies. There's there something called the rule of 72. It's kind of like a fun little math trick. I've heard of that. Can you yeah. talk us through it, or does sure, that not yeah, work Sure, yeah, yeah, it's easy. Yeah, okay. so, so do you take the number 72, divide it by your interest rate. So if your interest rate is 10% or your rate of return is 10, 72 divided by 10 is 7.2. Mm. That's where the number comes from. And there's mm. you know rule of 105. You know, take 105 divided by your interest rate, it tells you how long it takes for money to triple. So you think about it, 105 divided by 10 means money triples in 10 and a half years. So you go, whoa, wow. yeah, yeah, it is. You know, Albert Einstein said one of the most amazing innovations of all of mankind was compound interest. Because you think, mm -hmm. and here's the way I say this, young people. Think about this. Every seven years you wait to start preparing for retirement, you cut your retirement in half. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. It is nuts. Wow. 
But you know, you said something earlier. Let me let me let me hit, come back to something you said earlier because you were talking about the population overpopulation and things like that. I when I was I grew up I was a child of the seventies. Uh, so what happened was in school we were told the same exact thing. Overpopulation. There was a book in the nineteen sixties about that, as a matter of fact. And we were going to have a global ice age, global global ice age back then. It was you had satellite data proving that we were going into another ice age. And you know, I have found that throughout my history that a lot of times people make prognostications that this is going to happen and they don't necessarily be, see both sides of the picture. You know, like we're going to go and we're going to outstrip the ability for the earth to actually support humans. Uh, you know, oil, we're going to run out of oil. You know, that's what they talked about in the 1970s. What they learned, though, is how to drill horizontally. So they were able to drill straight down, but then they were able to go take a you know, left or a right turn and go horizontally. So a lot of times people get scared about things and, and you know, they, they think, oh, it's coming to an end. This is going to mm-hmm. destroy us. And, and you know, I've seen it so many times that I, I'm kind of jaundiced to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, um, the roll of 72 I'd heard, mm-hmm. but when you think of a 10% interest mm-hmm. doubling every seven years, I mean, yeah. that is an explanation for why the rich get richer and the poor yeah. get poor potentially if you're not doing something about it because if you are making barely living wage at best and that wage does not go up with inflation mm-hmm. that means your actual income basically is going down in time and if you're not investing anything then you're basically are getting poorer and poorer if you're not having raises mm-hmm. or on the other hand if someone has a hundred thousand invested every seven years that doubles. So now it's 100, 200, 200 to 400 to 800. Yeah. Or if that is a, a million, it goes a million to 2 million to 4 million. I mean, that's, yeah, that's pretty significant. Yeah. Uh, there was one guy that actually put it this way. It said, rich people buy assets, poor people buy liabilities. Mm-hmm. And I like the way he said that because you think yeah. about it when you're borrowing money and you're getting into debt, you're making somebody else rich. Mm-hmm. You're an asset to that rich person. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, and it's also true because a lot of times the poor people are buying liabilities like a car or a, a motorcycle or, I mean, even a house, I guess that's, sure. that's maybe that could go either way probably, but yeah, yeah. typically you want to, you want to stay away from depreciating assets when it comes to debt. You know, like a depreciating asset would be a car or a motorcycle or a couch or something like that that goes down in value. Uh, it's okay. You can make a case for buying something that's an appreciating asset, you know, because it's going to go up in value. So you're going to borrow money, you're going to pay interest, but your asset is going up in value as, as well on the other mm-hmm. side of the equation. So you can make a case for that. So somebody might get a loan for their business uh, because they're, that's an asset. They can make money with it. You know, mm-hmm. Somebody might get a college education, get a loan for that. You can make a case for it. <laughs> a lot of people are way more in college debt than they ought to be. Yep. But you may get a house, you know, would yep. be an example of that. So, yeah. Yeah, it is, um, man, it almost makes me short of breath to talk about that. Well, also, that's how the generational like wealth can really build, because if it doubles every seven years, mm-hmm. or if you're getting not 10% interest, even doubling every 10 years, I mean, my goodness, you've passed that from generation one to generation two, and that keeps doubling. Right. That's a big, big deal. Yeah. The reason it makes me a little short on breath is probably something you don't know, is in 2019, uh, my wife and I basically sold 
um, well, pretty much everything to put it into a business and facing a turnaround situation and we weren't able to turn it around and it ended. Oh, wow. And so we went, you know, we lost a few million on that and that's a few million that could be doubling every seven uh, years, yeah. apparently. Well, water <laughs> so, under the bridge and, you know, we it can't has do anything to be. about that. It yeah, has to be ha- because I'm 36 to. years old now and I don't have that, I don't have that momentum. Right. It's gone. And I, and I accept full responsibility for that. Um, well, there's two things you can do now. One is to kind of curl up in a ball and pour me and yeah. stay out of the game. And the other is to get up and go again. And the other thing is look at, at that age, you look at that and go, how many people have done anything with a, with a lesson like that? I remember mm-hmm. one guy, one of his employees came to him and he says, oh, boss, I made this big mistake. And, and it was a big mistake, really expensive one. And, and the boss goes, he, he goes, are you going to fire me over this? And the boss goes, no, I just, I just spent $50,000 yeah. on your education. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I love that way of looking at it. Um, my understanding is you are currently in getting a master's degree in psychology. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. How far into that are you? Yeah. So I'm, I actually start a practicum in January, which is where you're actually doing counseling. So I've, I'm far enough into it. Well, I'll be counseling before too long. Now, what's the end goal there? I was assuming it was just to help you understand how the human mind works so that you can reach them better through your financial advising and consulting, but are you actually going to be doing counseling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you'll be doing counseling. You'd be, you know, what's really interesting, the certified financial planner designation. That's, you know, you have degrees that you get when you want to become a financial planner. Uh, I have eight financial planning related degrees. Well, the CFP curriculum, they just added a psychology uh, component to their curriculum because they recognize that this is a huge deal. When you're dealing with psychology, you're not you're not, you're dealing with people, human motivations, and things like that. Investors have all kinds of biases that drive them, uh, like recency bias. Oh, that thing that just did really really well. You know, I just watched, been watching this Bitcoin, or I've been watching the you know oil stocks, or I've been watching technology, or I've been watching Apple, and you believe people believe that it's going to continue that the recent past is an indication of the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you'll have that, you have confirmation bias, which is what I do when I invest is I look around for things that I believe and what confirms my belief. If I believe that oil stocks are gonna go up, let's say, I will look for articles and things that are written out there in the press that confirm that it is gonna go up so I can basically give myself some rationale for doing what I'm, you know, rationing, rationing lies to my mind. Same concept as if you buy a red car, you start to see all the red cars. Yeah, okay. that's yeah. exactly right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of psychology in that. Uh, you have people that maybe they're, they're, they've lost a, a loved one. They've lost a, a, a wife or husband or they've lost a kid or they've uh, maybe lost a family member, you know, psychological issues that come with that. Maybe you're dealing with, let's say, a person that goes, oh, my, I've got a special needs kid. And that child has to be taken care of. What am I going to do? Well, you're dealing with some issues that are emotional Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. you're dealing with that. So you have to walk them through those types of things. And maybe you can even help them along the way. I've I've been amazed how often I'll get into conversations with people and I'm helping them with things that are going on in their lives. And they're, they're looking at me going, you actually understand me. Mm. You know, you understand and you'll have attachment issues that they have, maybe things that maybe their kids and, and, oh my goodness, you actually understand this. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. Mm -hmm. So with the psychology degree, you're going to be doing some counseling, but it's all going to be still centered around money management. Uh, no, not necessarily. It's all of life. I am very holistic in my approach to this business. Wow. I think that everything matters. Money is just a small part of who you are. 
Hmm. You know, it's, it's what do you want life to look like? You know, it sounds weird for a money guy to go, you know what, money isn't everything. Yeah. You know. But that's what money is all about, isn't it? Helping people have the life that they are looking to have. I mean, at the end of the day, money is, just, it's really nothing aside from an exchange of value or store of, store of value or whatever, exchange of currency. Yeah, it's a tool to express what you value. So one of the things that I'll do with people is I'll go, okay, I want you to take and, and get a list, get a piece of paper out. I want you to write down the things that you have to do to feel that you lived a life without regret. You know, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What do you want to learn? What are the things you want to experience? Who do you want to spend time with? Now take that one step further. That's your bucket list. Now, what is the value behind that? Okay, so this is going to give you, it's going to give you a recipe for how do you use your money? Because if I know what I value, then maybe I won't spend my time trying to impress people that I don't like mm-hmm. with money that I don't have buying things that I really don't need. Yeah. You know, so it's, you see how it comes in now. So it's very psychological. And then you also have fears. People have things that they fear. Well, if you fear something, that fear is telling you what you actually believe. And many times we will pick up things from the culture, from our family, from our friends. We'll pick up beliefs that aren't necessary, necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Well, how do I get somebody off of something like that? I better understand a little bit about psychology and, and helping them take you know, whatever they believe and, and the outcome that they're having and go, okay, what, you, know, you got some negatives from mm-hmm. believing what you're believing. This is really eating your lunch. This mm-hmm. is really causing you to not sleep at night. Mm-hmm. You know, so what we got to do is take it and examine that to see if it's true, see if it's rational, see if it makes sense. Now, I'm not going to tell you because if I tell you something, I've told you. Mm. But if I help you discover it for yourself by asking questions, whole different deal. By the way, you're a great you're great at asking questions. So, you know, that's you're amazing yeah. at this. Well, that's my, it's kind of my job here. Yeah, but but, uh, but it, is, it. it is something I've always enjoyed. Um, okay. Did you just say that fear is an indication of what you believe? Is that what you said? Fear is an indication. Yeah. You can, if I know what you fear, I can figure out a belief behind it. Uh, so, okay. So, you know, they're, they're in, in sometimes fear, I fear that which I don't understand is another way of saying it. Yeah. You know, so if I fear something, it's typically because I don't understand all the working parts of it. You know, let's, let's take the stock market, for example. And you, you have all these different moving parts of, of the stock market. And a lot of times I have to remind people, hey, look, you know what? Who are the most successful people in the world? Who are they? And like, uh, and they'll name people like Warren Buffett, you know, Bill Gates and uh, Elon Musk. And, and I'll go, they're all what? They're all business owners. You get to be a business owner when you own stocks. Mm-hmm. You just don't have to run the doggone company. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I like that. Um, the fear thing, I think what you said about having some unknowns mm-hmm. and uncertainties and you kind of dig into those and that removes fear, that, that makes total sense. The thing about fear being an indication of what you believe or kind of pressing into that is interesting. Because mm-hmm. I fear, can I, can I give you two and then yeah. kind of poke at it? All right, man. I, I fear that I'm going to die alone for starters. Mm-hmm. And that may be just not unrelated to this discussion. But I also fear that if I don't have some means that I'm going to lose my friends. Mm. Are those common fears? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think dying alone is a really interesting one. There was uh, a guy that actually, he's big in group psychology, and he actually talked about that. 
he, and, and this guy is a is an atheist, which I, I think is kind of a sad thing. Um, yeah. But he basically believes that that mankind invented God so that when they died, they wouldn't be alone. Sure. And that's that's his belief. But you know that I would hardly disagree with. Yeah, I'd hardly disagree with that too. And then I can also understand why he would say that. Like if he didn't believe in God, because we desperately don't want to. We desperately don't want this life to be it. You right. know what I mean? I think right. we all just mm-hmm. have that within us. Mm-hmm. And then as you know, Christians, I think it's, well, for one, I think that's, that's true. Yeah. And I'm just so glad it is because right. it doesn't mean, but I, but I mean like, I don't mean like necessarily after the death. I just, I don't know why, just for some reason, I just fear I'm going to die alone. Yeah, which well, I I know that if my wife is still alive when I die, that's not going to be the case. Yeah, or <laughs> or somebody else. Yeah, you're yeah. you're going to have uh, you know, you'll have other people around. But the reality of it is, a lot of people have that fear. That was your question. Mm-hmm. So you know that's that's where I went with that. The second one was yeah, I, f- I fear that if I don't have some means, that I'm going to lose my friends. Yeah, and and, and it comes down to that value thing again. I, we want to go back to that again. So one of the beauties of living your life via values is you don't have to have any money whatsoever to express your values. For example, I can go sit in a hospital room with a friend of mine that's sick, and that didn't cost me a dime. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a value, is showing love to other people. That doesn't cost anything. You know, there, there is a really good psychological, it's, you know, these XY axis type of thing, and there are things that are really, really uh, glamorous, on the top, and there are things that are not glamorous on the bottom, and there are things on the left-hand side that are uh, more important uh, or less important. The, the left side, now that I think about it, is less important than you think. The right side is more important than you think. And up on the glamorous but less important you think is youth. And you know what the second one is? Money. Mm. Because we, it's mm. glamorous, but it's actually less important than we think. You know what's down on the bottom, bottom right-hand side, which is more important than you think, and it's not glamorous, but dancing and laughing mm-hmm. and, uh, and just friendship and, and just, you know, hang, you know, just spending time with people. And time is a big one. Mm-hmm. You know, time is, is a huge one down there. Because, you know, we get to the end of life and we go, man, I, I thought... I would have done more. I thought there would be more. And we don't have time. You can't, you know, put it in a bottle as one old songwriter mm-hmm. put it. Yeah, I can I can totally attest that. Having had some means um and and then having experienced having basically nothing that I can I can attest to what you're saying, which is at the end of the day, the most important things are the most important things and don't include money. Yeah. Um but also having experienced kind of both ends of the spectrum just a little bit. I'm looking forward to making better money and having more means because you have more options and you can do more things with it. That's that's absolutely true. Now, the other the other side, you know, yes, and as a matter of fact, there was a doctor that actually he got to his retirement years and he said, "You know what? I spent my whole life chasing money." And he says, "You know, I realized at the end of it that that's all it really gave me is some options. And, you know, it, and it's really interesting because it's a double-sided coin because in America, we're very, very, we can tend to be very materialistic. There was this, I was taking an anthropology class in college and this guy goes, hey, you know, there are these tribes over in Africa. Let me tell you about them. And he says, in the tribe, 
cohesiveness of the tribe is absolutely critical. And he says, matter of fact, if you have one person in that tribe that has something that the other people want, it is incumbent upon that person to get rid of it because mm. it creates jealousy amongst the other members and it breaks down the cohesiveness. And on the other side of the coin can be sometimes when we have more than everybody else, they're jealous of us and it actually breaks down that level of intimacy that we can have with other people if they're jealous of us because, mm -hmm. you know, nobody wants that. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want, you know, so it can be, it can be a two-edged sword, really. Yeah, for sure. And, and, um, I, I feel like I am, I would say in the last several months, experiencing the benefits of a strong network. And what I mean by that is, you know, after kind of getting our teeth kicked in pretty good in 2019 and 20, mm -hmm. none of my good friends left. Like when we had some means and then nothing, they all stayed. Like they probably shouldn't have, but they all stayed. And so I'm talking with, you know, two or three of my closest friends and I just, they're telling me about what they're up to because I'm interested in everything mm -hmm. and the, what's moving and shaking in their life. And that to me is because they're kind of crushing it. And so right. for me, it's like, well, those are my friends. They're killing it. I can, I feel like I'm, I can do one or two things right now, which is withdraw from them and not, you know, not talk about what they're doing, kind of take that idea and move that idea out of my life. Mm -hmm. Or I can rise up and try to get back into the game you know, lick your wounds and move on mm -hmm. and try to, you know, get back in the game and move forward. And that's what my network, I guess, or my friends have been really helping me do the last several months. So I feel like, mm -hmm. I feel like for people that are poor and don't have that network though, that's where I kind of feel really, I guess, sorry for them because they don't have that kind of draw pulling them back kind of into the, the way life works, I don't know, works best, which is yeah. hard to say because it's not, life might be working really great for them. But it's this idea of, you know, if you are born in certain areas and cities or wherever it is, my gosh, it can be really hard to get ahead because you don't see it modeled. Right. I had the advantage of maybe not having much for a short period of time there, but I was seeing it modeled all around me. Right. And there's a huge benefit to yeah. that. Yeah. And I think what you said was really, really interesting. You actually, in, in psychology, you did something called finding the exception. You found that you actually had, you said, I, if I don't have any money, then I won't have friends. And then what happened is you ran into the exception when you didn't have the money that you had prior, the friend stayed. So yeah. you found the exception. So you found that you're already thinking, yeah. you were doing some stinking thinking, as we say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I'm glad you called that out. Okay, I'm curious. You know a lot about money. Uh -huh. You know a lot about how the human mind works with psychology and everything, both from you know your degree now or the, the school you're in, but also because you're just working with people for so long. Yeah. So what kind of at scale, and this... That's probably not a difficult question, but at, at, at scale of like cultural society or the people you're working with commonly, where are people thinking the most wrong about money the most commonly? Well, I think it was a lesson I learned when I was 25. I read a book called The Richest Man in Babylon. It was. Oh, yeah, I have it right back here. Do you really? Yeah, I've read it twice. Okay, so don't yeah. you love the story? The, the guy is the richest man in Babylon, and, you know, all these ne'er-do-wells are coming to him, and they don't have any money. Then, you know, they pull out their pockets, and, you know, no money. And he says to them, part of all you earn should be yours to keep, he says. And then what he does, which I thought was brilliant, he says, okay, what do you earn? Now let's put it into today's dollars. Uh, I earn $50,000. I earn 40. I earn 30. I earn 25 or whatever. And he says, okay, 
come back, you know, in a week or so, they come back and they say, okay, how many of you have a, a bag full of gold? And they go, well, none of us. They pull out their pockets, still nothing in them. He says, wait, 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 wait a minute. You make 50 and you make 35. You ought to have $15,000 if this yes. were a year, you see? You should have money set aside. You can live, if you're at 50, you can live like that person does at 35. There's no excuse for you not to do that. So a part of all they earn should be theirs to keep. And, and I have one lady that works for me. She, she puts it this way. She goes, 10, 10, 10. And I, I laugh because there was a guy running for president. Herman Cain was 999, right? <laughs> <laughs> I about forgot about Herman Cain. That was a while ago. I know, it was a long time ago, right? right <laughs> but right. I remember the name. She was 10, 10, 10. And she, uh, 10% of what you earn should be giving. And she was, you know, big on giving. She's, she's big on, you know, giving and, and tithing and, and doing that. 10% is for saving so that you pay cash for cars and things like that. 10 is for, for retirement. Mm. And that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, so the other 70, you live off of that. And if you live in that particular manner, you end up not that being that person that is dependent upon everybody else and, yes. and as a ward of the state or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That 10, that I think the, so she's saying 10, 10, 10, 30%, the mm-hmm. richest man in Babylon, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like it's that book that was big on the idea that if you can live on a dollar, you can live on 90 cents. If you can live mm-hmm. on a hundred thousand a year, you can live on 90,000 a year. Right. If you can live on 50,000 a year, then you can live on 45,000 a year. It's the idea that yeah. you can live on 90% of what you make. Yeah. And the, so was that that book? I, think, I don't I think remember that it, it I think there. that it was. Um, and but, so yeah. when I read I that book through, exactly. I, and I think it was that book. After I read it through the second time, I was like, all right, when money comes in, because this is what was different my whole life than maybe a lot of people, which is that, I mean, I haven't had a W-2 paycheck in <laughs> probably 15 years. I mean, this is a long, long time. Yeah. And even then it was a short, short stretch and it came from my mom when I worked at the family company. But so my income was like, monthly or every couple of weeks, like just all over the place, you know? And so what I switched to doing was any time that cash came into our bank account, our personal bank account that wasn't a refund on, say, a business expense or whatever, Mm -hmm. any time it came in, immediately, and I mean the same day, I would move 10% of it into savings immediately. Mm -hmm. Because if I left it in there and did it once a month or did it once a week or did it every two weeks, now if I'm checking in on the bank account or whatever, I'm factoring you know, whatever amount is in there and just that subconscious thing. I don't think about, well, remember you're going to move 10%. Of, so for me, it was right. like, as soon as the money came in 10% immediately. And look, if you have to Perfect. move some from savings back into checking yeah. later, cause I would did that and I would keep track. Like I borrowed from savings, you yeah. know, and then pay it back. Oh yeah. Uh, but that really helped. So that was the, that was the, the thing that we did that, uh, um, I, I just felt like it was helpful. As soon as money came in 10% immediately went to savings and then, I was always thinking in terms of um, living off of capital. That's what I wanted to get to as quick as possible. Yeah, Make yeah. money, invest it in cap in in cash flowing assets, mm-hmm. and then live off the cash the income from the cash flowing assets. Right. So. That's that's perfect. There was a, an old mentor of mine used to draw two circles, and this is how he would teach. Literally very close to what you're saying, he draws first circle, and he go first is spend, and then save was at the bottom. And he'd just kind of you know, put a line. Then he'd draw a second circle and he'd say, save and then spend. And he says, Let me, he says, now there are two types of people in the world. Those that spend first and save what's left over. He says, anything ever left over? Nah, Mm-mm. never. 
second group, save first, spend what's left over. He says, let me tell you the most powerful concept in all of finance, he would go. The first group of people will forever be dependent upon the second group of people. Mm. And he says, which group do you want to be in? And he would, it was just power. He would just cross out the first one. Save first, because people don't typically, and I've been doing this for over 30 years, they don't budget. They don't like mm. budgeting. They don't like setting up envelopes. I, you know, some people do. There are, there are a couple of people out there, but most of the people I find, if you just get them to save first and then spend everything that's left over, that is the key. And in fact, Congress just finally figured it out. They're, they're actually working on a bill right now that is, it is designed that anybody sets up a 401k plan, a company, that they will automatically enroll people in the company in the 401k because they have found that if you say, hey, we got a 401k, you want to enroll in it? They won't take the action. But if you enroll them and they've got to work to disenroll mm. and actually fill out a, a form saying, no, I don't want you taking money out of my paycheck, they won't put forth that e effort either. Mm. So they're finding that if you can set it up. So I tell people, if you don't have a 401k, go bank draft your checking account to an IRA or something. Mm -hmm. Just start taking money out. You won't miss it. Mm -hmm. Exactly, which is that that 1090 concept. Now, that's right. What I don't know anything about what you just said. Congress passed a law that if your business has a 401k, it is not passed yet. They're working on it. So this was just went out of a, a subcommittee and in the in the House, and it's going before a vote. It's something that's out there. There are a few provisions in there that could come through. None of it's really all that uh, controversial either. That's the good part about this. So there's a possibility that this may actually may end actually up going happen. through. I mean, it sounds great. So if I have XYZ yeah. Manufacturing and I hire John, John starts to work and he gets his first paycheck and he's looking it over and a little bit is coming out for 401k. Mm -hmm. We never had the discussion. I didn't have to have the discussion. He's like, I don't know if, what's up with that. And then I tell him, he said, like, no, I definitely want that taken out. So then we take it out. But if he never asks or never brings it up, it automatically would come out and go into 401k for him? Yep, goes into his little account, and they get a match on wow. it. Wow. And it's even said, it's kind of cool. Some of the things that are in their provisions in the, in the new law are kind of interesting. You get this kid comes out of college and goes, oh, I got so much student debt, I can, I'm, I'm drowning. I can't put money in the 401k. I can't afford to. I've got to pay off the student debt. They're actually setting it up so that you go and pay on the student debt. And if you prove to your employer that you paid on the student debt, they'll send you the match that you would have gotten on the 401k. You know, because typically when you put money in a 401k, there's a match. Right. You put $100 in, they, put, they match it. They put $100 in on yep. your behalf. Well, in this case, you can't put money away. You can't do without the 100. You've got to go and pay your student debt and you're drowning in debt. You go and do the student debt and just prove to the employer that you did that then they will go and put the match in on your behalf. Oh, wow. Into the 401k. Uh-huh, into the 401k. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, exactly. So that's part of it, too. And, well, and there's other stuff that nobody could care about, you know, raising the retirement age to 75 and stuff like that, where you don't have to pull money out of your 401k. Gotcha. Yeah. By the way, the somehow, I guess this passed, it's a done deal, right? Is starting in July, they're sending out 250 bucks per kid between the age of three and... 17 or whatever it is. Three? Yeah. Do you yeah, know much there, about there's that? Something, I, I know enough to be dangerous. There's something that you have the ability to opt out of it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think and, it was between the age yeah. of three and 
I don't know, pre-teens was 300 a month. And then from that age up to like, I don't know, I'm going to butcher this, 12 or 15 yeah. is like 250 a month. I mean, I have five kids. Am I about to get 300 times <laughs> yeah, five the, per month? Yeah, that that's not an area that I spend. I got other people that work with me that actually spend more time studying that. I part don't even of know it. what happens. Look, I, if they send me a check, I'm going to cash it. That's all I'm there saying. You go. <laughs> um, okay, what? Um, back to money and people in general. Is there other common, very dangerous thought processes out there about money that you're seeing? Yeah, typically I find that people buy houses that are way bigger than they really should have and, and become house poor, you know, and they tend to buy, you know, you, know, you hear people say brand new cars because ha- cars depreciate so much in the first couple of years. It's typically better to wait a couple of years and buy something used on the market two years old because, you know, somebody's gone and and take the depreciation for you. Mm-hmm. Those are big things. Houses are a big one, especially right now. Oh my goodness, you've mm-hmm. got housing prices going like nuts. And, and I remember back in 08, uh, no, it was actually earlier than that, 2006, 2007, I will never forget that housing bubble that was happening. And my wife looking at each other going, uh, you know, this house is really nice, but I don't know if it's worth a million dollars. And all of a sudden, a couple of years later, everything came crumbling down. And that competition right now, is so fierce in the housing market that people are actually buying houses and and putting bids on them and saying, I'll forego the inspection. I just want to get in there. And Mm -hmm. and they're paying way over the asking price for the houses. It's happening every day. One of my best friends is in real estate in Nashville, and then another one of my best friends is in real estate in upstate New York. And I understand Mm -hmm. why Nashville is a buzz. Yeah. What I don't understand is why upstate New York is a buzz, at least to the extent that it is. It's not a knock on upstate New York. It's just this yeah. is this is. I grew New York. up up there, by the way. Oh, did you? Yeah. What part? Uh, Albany. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was Finger Lakes. I grew up in the oh, Finger yeah, Lakes gotcha. area. Yeah. And um, but farms, single family homes, yeah. homes on the lake. Um, I think it, it must be people moving out of New York City. I'm That's not right. really sure because you, right. you wouldn't think that right now people yeah. are like moving into like New York and California. They tend to be moving out. But what are your thoughts on what's going on with housing? Is this sustainable? Are we about to have a bubble? What, what's what's going on? That's the challenge. So what's people, what people are doing is exactly what you said. They're moving out because, you know, you've had me in this city, cooped up in this city, and then you close the whole city down, and I can't go anywhere. I can't do anything. I'm getting out of here. And you know what? By the way, my employer says that I can do work remotely. And I can phone it in, mm-hmm. so to speak. And there's a, there are a lot of people saying, I think that's the new wave of the future. There are other people out there saying, not so fast. People still need to see each other. Even the CEO of Zoom is getting sick of Zoom meetings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. It means he's human. Yeah. I was sick of Zoom meetings about three weeks in last year. Yeah. So, you know, so will it actually reverse where people go, you know what? And there are people out there. I've seen articles in the Wall Street Journal going, uh, I think this is a mistake going out and buying a house. I, I wish we hadn't done this. And it could reverse where it goes the other direction, where the demand for these houses, but that's where the demand is coming from in these rural areas. Mm-hmm. And I think it'll just depend a lot on culture. How do we actually adjust to these remote sessions. Uh, they're finding, companies are finding that they're not getting good ideas like they used to get when people were in. And there's yes. actually brain science Shocker. behind this. Yep. Yeah, there's actually brain science behind this as to why people, how people's brains work and how they work much better in front of each other than they do in front of a screen. Yes. Well, you know, what part of that is that I didn't know until the last year is that your eyes are not so much the window into your brain. They are your brain. Yes. Your eyes are part of your brain. Yeah. So when you're you close like brains. this, 
You got three brains. What? Your stomach. Oh yeah, your yeah. Heart, your gut. Okay. And, and your head brain. Yeah. Yeah. There's there are enough nerve endings in all three of them for them to be separate brains. Wow. Is what they're finding. But the but what you said is that in person yes. is like we can see very quickly since right. we're in person how the other person is doing or feeling or mm-hmm. you can just tell with their eyes. That is correct. And that was that made sense to me with the eyes being part of the brain because in person it's it's a different category altogether mm-hmm. than than virtual and what you said too is i totally agree with i think the remote working thing i mean look part of it's probably just here to stay because of technology COVID aside remote was way easier to have happen yeah but all along amazon was not that friendly about working from home like they saw the value in keeping their people together and what people don't know facebook bought two hundred fifty thousand square foot of office space in new york city during the covid time when they were all about work from home for another year like they were saying one thing and yeah. doing a completely different thing and then so some of these tech companies mopped up on cheap commercial or office real estate yeah. because they knew at some point they're going back in person you know that reminds me of it's a wonderful life you know the bank scene I never Where, saw you know, he's, he's, try, he's trying to go and, and get these people to understand how a bank works. And he says, look, Potter's not panicking. Mm. And that is what happens. You know, if you were to say, what's the biggest issue that people have? You know what? I think it's, it's them. It's, I've, I look in the mirror and I've seen the enemy and it's me. Mm-hmm. Because our emotions and our instincts, our instincts tell us to go toward pleasure and away from pain. Yes. When you think about it, what do markets do? They go up and down. People buy mutual funds based on past performance. They look at track record. We know that markets go up and they go down. What follows up? The track record was good when up was happening. Mm-hmm. What followed it was down. And that is, we see the studies on investor returns versus markets histor- historically, and it's not even close. Investors in stock markets get much, much lower returns than markets do themselves. And it's because of our behavior. It's what's going on between mm. these two ears. Oh, that's interesting. And that is really, that's where I spend most of my time with investors, quite frankly, is helping them understand their brains and how their brains actually cause them to make mistakes in investing that can be millions and millions of dollars over their lifetimes. Okay. Let's talk more about that. But first, before we move too far beyond it. I want to ask, what do you suggest is an affordable home for someone? How do you, like how much home can people afford? What, you know, it, do you have some guidelines on that? Yeah, there are guidelines. And you know, there are people out there that uh, that actually have rules of thumb in this area. And I think that they're fairly decent. I typically go on the low end of them. You'll hear people say that you can afford a home that is no more where the payments are no more than like 30% of your income is something. Sometimes I'll hear up to 40%. But if you keep it down a little bit lower, 30 mm-hmm. and below, I think that's a lot more manageable, Okay. number one. And then you know, when, you, when you're dealing with a mortgage, I like to have the mortgage paid off by the time I get to retirement. You know, so, okay. Yeah. So less about 15-year or 30-year mortgage and more about, yeah. well, let's figure out when retirement age is and let's make sure to have it paid off by then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and the reason being is it's part of your budget. And if your budget drops by that amount of money just before you retire, mm-hmm. retirement's a whole lot easier to deal with mm-hmm. because you've been used to living on that lower amount of money because the mortgage was on top of it before. Yep. Makes sense. Does make sense. How do you think about money? And let's come back to the stock market investors. How do you think about money? Is how much, this is something I've, I've de- I feel like I've dealt with this my whole entire adult life, but mm-hmm. How much attention and drive and goals and ambition and so forth should be put around money to begin with? Or is 
it really not about that. And it's more about the motivation behind the drive. Like if you have mm. a high um, drive for making a bunch of money or more money or becoming more wealthy, but it's because you want to be generous with that and have options and mm. have more time and, and, and contribute to society in that way. Or it's because you want to, you know, hoard all of this and look wealthy and those types of things. That's the same actions, but two very different motivations. Yeah. yeah. So, but in general, I'm just kind of curious what, what level of focus and goals and ambition should, should be put around money to begin with? I think it's, it's a really good question because it gets down to your values. What do I value? What's really important? Remember, we got back to earlier saying that money is just a tool to help you express what you value and what do you value. Now, when it comes to earning money, you know, if we look at that and we say, well, some people will say, well, it's a yardstick on how valuable you are. And that's mm-hmm. only to a certain extent. You could have somebody that's, let's say, a pastor or somebody that is doing work that it's not very highly paid, but it's incredibly valuable. But in the working in economy and capitalism, so to speak, yeah, it is because what the, the level of pay that you typically get is going to be driven by what, how big of a problem that you're solving. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Gates solved a lot bigger problem than I ever saw. Yep. <laughs> you know, the ability to actually have a computer that, you know, because we used to pick up the phone. I mean, on the old days, you watch the old movies, and if you wanted to know something, you picked up the phone, you called the operator, yeah. and the operator went back to the book <laughs> and looked up stuff for you. Yeah, so true. And you think, wow, that's a huge problem to mm-hmm. solve. And the ability to actually operate across oceans with other countries around the world at an instant. I mean, telecommunications, those types of things. So yeah, your pay is going to be dependent to some extent on that. Now, what do you do with the money once you earn it? Well, that's why I think it's so important to sit down with a sheet of paper in front of you and write down, what are the things I want to do to feel I lived a life without regret? But why? What is, what is it I'm expressing this? I may want a cottage in New Hampshire, for example. I never really thought about, why do I want a cottage in New Hampshire? And I, I sit there and think about it. I go, oh, oh, wait a minute. You know what? I really want to spend more time. I want to have a place where I could bring my kids and we could all have a big family outing. Well, do you really have to go buy a place in New Hampshire to spend more time with your kids? And when you start to actually think through what it is that you really, really want, what's really, and what is it? What's that expressing? Love. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Maybe my true purpose for money is love. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to express with the way I use my money. Maybe it's adventure. Maybe that's another thing that's really, really important. Well, I can do adventures. I remember when I was a kid riding on my little bike mm-hmm. in my backyard, and we had ventures all the time. I didn't yep. have to spend millions of dollars and go on an all-around-the-world cruise to have adventure. Yep. Maybe I can figure out what's... I want to have connection with my wife. Well, I remember one of the greatest connections I ever had with my wife was on our anniversary, and we were in a house that wasn't finished. It wasn't built. We had a micro... I brought in a microwave oven, and we brought in a little teeny table, and we brought TV dinners, and we sat there in the middle of this unfinished house, and I will never forget. That was the mm-hmm. most unbelievable experience I ever had with her, hmm. you know, as far as just connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and another time when, when uh, she, we couldn't afford to go to a James Taylor con- you know, concert. Uh, <laughs> and we couldn't afford it. So what I did is I went and got this, this projector and I got a, a James Taylor DVD from the library because I couldn't afford to buy the doggone thing. <laughs> and I put it in a computer and I projected the concert nice. on the living room in our house. And we said, yeah. and you think about there's so much. Here stuff you, you are can- talking about that this day. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yes. Very cool. You know, so money is something that, yeah, it's cool. It gives you some choices. 
but it's not really that important when it really gets down to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you can help more charities. I, you know, I, I love helping charities and, and helping people out that are, that are in need. So it does give me choices in that area because that's what's really important to me and what I learned. Mm-hmm. You know, watching other people grow, watching other people you know, mm-hmm. achieve what they want in life. But you're saying, okay, help me connect the final dot because you're saying money is not that important mm-hmm. or it's certainly not ultimate, and yet... Your be career is around money management. Be so, a good steward of it. Okay. Is that what it is for yeah, you? Yeah, it is. Okay. It's being a good steward of it because I'm given a responsibility to whom much is given, much is expected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're given something, you see a lot of people squander, you know, the opportunities that they have. You know, maybe it's because of pride. I don't want to ask anybody for financial advice. I know I've got this. And, and I go, well, you know, the reality is you're going to hand your money to a mutual fund company and they you are blindly trusting them now. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't really ever manage your own money. You know, so people that think that I'm managing my own stuff, they're not really. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the reality of it is a lot of people, they don't want to learn anything about investing. You know, so what happens, they don't learn anything, and then they end up being taken advantage of by an industry that is more than willing to take advantage of uneducated people. Mm. You know, so maybe it's just a stewardship issue, learning a little bit about, you know, what am I doing? Why am I doing? What should I expect? How does this work? And making sure that you make the most of it. You know, I see people investing in things. You know, and I go, wow, you know what? You don't, you don't realize that you're being taken advantage of, and you could be using the money that you're not making mm-hmm. to help people that you really love, people that you care for, charities that you believe in. Mm-hmm. Maybe you ought to spend some time on that. Yep. Yeah, so yep. that's okay. really what it comes to All me. right, so your work is, I'm just thinking about kind of the, the phases of money. Your work is less on helping people create a greater income. Is that accurate? Or do you help people create a greater it's, income? It's part of it, yeah, yeah. So, so helping people with their career, creating greater income? I'll, sure, I'll have people ask me about those types of things all the okay. time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if someone's making whatever amount of money they're making and they're happy with their life right. and things, you're not going to try to get them to kind of be who they aren't or yeah. or live an uncomfortable life in an effort to make more money, right? So, right. All right. So in that particular case, fine with the income. You're going to help them learning how to kind of give and save and, and, and invest for the future. So that's the thing that's kind of the phase two and then phase three is that whole investment piece right how, how do you how do you take an income what in retirement you, yeah okay yeah. Is, is that the question or is the question how to create the greatest <laughs> yeah. return yeah, or that whole investment bit let's talk about that what are your thoughts on yeah. that what do you what are your common recommendations in that you, category you go to two two phases of life i'll give you a two-part answer to this part of the, your first phase of life you're earning money and you're working for money and then the second phase money works for you so it's getting people from phase one to phase two, because at some point you may not want to work. You may have grandkids. You want to go hang out with them. You may want to travel the world. You may want to do other things. You may want to work with charities and things like that. So, you know, what is it I want to do? And part of all you earn should be yours to keep. So getting you to that phase, you know, so that's, that's going to be one part of it. And I forgot the second part of your, your question about that. Well, just let's talk more about your recommendations oh, investing. in investing Got in it. general. Okay. So th- this is the interesting part. When you invest, there are certain rules of investing that are absolutely critical. Your instincts and your emotions will work against you like crazy and to break these rules. But buy and hang on to things. 
When you buy something, you hang on to it. Uh, Warren Buffett had a great line. His favorite holding period for a stock was forever. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) And and I own a company. And, you know, it'd be like, I own this company, and can't you own this company over here? It would be like every couple of years when we trade stocks, It'd be like, I'm going to buy your company from you today, and you buy my company from me. And, and let's then pay years, Colby to manage. That's the, right. Colby's going to get. Yeah. yeah that's, yep. And then what we're going to do is a couple of years later, we're going to go and, and trade again. Mm, we would think we were nuts if we did that. Yep. You know, so that that's not what we want to do. Uh, so, you know, you, you get into, you know, what do you invest in and how do you invest? Well, second role of investing, diversify. You know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Old Testament, Ecclesiastes, you have Solomon saying, put your money into seven to eight places because you don't know what calamity will befall the earth. Does he say that? Yeah. Ecclesiastes 11.2. So you go there and he says, put your money in seven to eight places. You don't know what calamity will befall the earth. Then a few verses later, verse 6, he goes, okay, so plant in the morning and plant in the afternoon because you don't know if one will do better than the other or both will do well. The Nobel Prize for Economics in 1990 was awarded for that very thing, what I just described to you. It took also all the way to 1990 yeah. from, you know, a 700 BC or something like that yep. to figure this out. So in essence, what you do when you invest is the way I explain it is bathing suit sales and winter coat sales. There are different areas of the market that don't move with each other. And part of the job of the investment person is to put things together that have low correlations with each other. They just don't move with each other. Mm. When one zigs, the other one zags. Now, sometimes they both zig together, and sometimes Mm -hmm. they both zag together. But if you put things together that have low correlation, they move in dissimilar fashion enough that it actually makes sense to put them together, and it lowers the overall risk of the portfolio Mm-hmm. And it can increase the expected return. Why? Because when one's zigging like this and the other one's going down, I, cha- I go, oh, I've got to manage this portfolio. I'm only supposed to have this much of this, and I'm supposed to have the- I better sell a little bit of this one, buy a little bit of this one. So what am I doing? I'm selling high, mm-hmm. buying low mm-hmm. when I do that. So there are areas like very large companies. Very large companies and very small companies have very little in common with each other in many cases. So a very big company, when your economies of scale are important and being really, really big is important, that's when you want to own your big companies. Small companies, they change on a dime on technology. So those are good when technology is changing rapidly. Mm -hmm. Then you have value companies. Value companies are, when I say value company, I want you to think ugly house. I got a pretty house. And I got an ugly house. (laughs) (laughs) Ugly house sells for less, right? Yeah. So... What am I going to pay more for? The pretty house, because it's pretty. There aren't that many risks. Ugly house, there are lots of risks. I won't, so I have more potential for gain when I buy the ugly house. So that's what happens. Value companies are companies that have a lower price compared to their assets. Why? Because they deserve to be selling for less because they're ugly. Mm-hmm. And they have more potential to grow. So if we look at value companies versus growth companies, most American investors are really attracted. I looked at something this morning, a huge mutual fund company who shall remain nameless. The very highest returning area of the market so far year to date is small value companies. Mm. Sixty. Well, since the election, uh, up 60%. I mean, huge, big, big returns. This fund company, one of the biggest in the world, has less than 1% of their assets, of their investor assets in that asset category. Why? Because most people are very, very focused on big companies. Why? Psychology again. 
Familiarity bias. Mm -hmm. I like to invest in companies I'm familiar with. I am not familiar with little ugly companies. Yes. I'm very familiar with big, well-known companies like Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So that's what happens. Another mistake that investors make. They typically focus on companies that they're familiar with and they've heard of rather than focusing on really what they ought to be focusing on, which are companies that are not necessarily on their radar screen. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. In the investor category, when you're working with your clients, is it always the investment is that you're helping them with is always in the market to some degree, whether it be a stock or a mutual fund or an ETF or whatever? Or do you help them invest in real estate also? Or is it really you're just primarily focused on, on, on publicly traded companies? So typically, I don't hold real estate in my own portfolios. Do I own real estate? Yeah, I do. Do I ever recommend it to somebody? If, they're, if they have a propensity to, and they're good at it, mm -hmm. it's a job. Right. You have to have a skill set to be able to manage real estate. And a lot of people get into it and they think investment. And I say, no, nah, investment's only a little part of it. It's the job aspect that really creates the returns in real estate. You know, so if you look at that and go, you better know how to do that job. Yeah. Now, when I own an investment portfolio, stock portfolio, uh, Ray, Ray Kroc from McDonald's, when he was asked, hey, what kind of company is this? He goes, well, uh, a burger company? And he goes, no, it's a real estate company. Yeah. We own some of the best real estate in all of America. And the reality of it is when I have a stock portfolio, I got lots of exposure to real estate mm -hmm. all around the world. Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't go and buy it as a separate asset out okay. here. That makes sense. And so then is your recommendation, what, what do you most commonly recommend for people in terms of then investing? Is it stocks? Is it mutual funds? Is it ETFs? I'd, I'd love to hear you kind of talk through that. And if there's even some particular companies right now that you're paying extra attention to or whatever, I'd love to hear that yeah. too. Yeah. No individual stocks. Think about okay. it. When you're, buying, when you're buying an individual stock, you're letting that company use your money. If you look at the, you ask that company, hey, you want to pay me more to use my money? Well, no, they don't want to pay you any more than they have to. Mm -hmm. So if I own one single stock and I compare it to all companies that are like risk of that company, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there are another hundred companies out there that are the same risk level of, as that particular company, or maybe even some, some maybe in the same industry, that entire group of stocks, the expected return is the same as that single company because they don't want to pay any more to use our money. So think of, it, think of the stock market as a system, like the ocean is a system. Water goes up and goes down and goes up and down. Now, in that system, in any given day, what's the likelihood one boat is going to sink? Probably pretty good. Mm -hmm. something, something seriously could happen in one boat and it sinks. What are the likelihood of all of them sinking? Pretty slim to none. Mm -hmm. So there's a systematic risk in that markets go up and down, but there's a non-systematic risk that something happens to just one of those boats, and you don't want to take that. You don't want to take risk that you're not paid to take. The expected return of a single company is no higher than the area of the market. Why would I buy a single company? Because I believe, goes all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, that it is selling for less than what it's really worth. I believe that markets are inefficient, that it's selling for this, and shh, it's really worth this because I know more about this company, and I think, it's, I think I've got an inside track on this company, mm -hmm. and it's really worth more. So that's the only reason I would invest in an individual stock, because I think it's mispriced. But there's a Nobel Prize awarded to show, no, even the pros can't do it. Mm -hmm. you got somewhere than 90 to 96% uh, of professional fund managers cannot get higher returns than what the market did over the past 15 years. If they can't do it, 
our likelihood of doing it is pretty doggone yes. slim. Yep. <laughs> so then what do you recommend? Mutual funds? Mutual funds and ETFs, both of them. Okay. Um, ETFs can work in some asset classes. Mutual funds would be the only good choice in other asset categories because of exposure. Uh, what areas of the market I can get. You know, there are some ET there are some areas of the market I want to be in, like international small value. I, I don't have an ETF that actually captures that well. Mm -hmm. uh, in US small companies as well, some areas of US small companies. So yeah, both of those because now I'm spreading that risk between thousands and thousands of companies. Yes. And some people, do you find, though, want the, I guess, the adrenaline kick or the rush or they want, I don't know, I hate to say distraction, but they want to be checking in on their stocks, right? Sure. Like that's the last thing I want to be doing. Sure. Uh, but some people actually like that part of it. And so I guess if they want to, so then what would you yeah. say? Okay, well, then let's let's look at your income. Let's see how much you can be investing. Let's get that going into ETFs and mutual funds on a consistent basis. And sure, if you want to tamper with a few hundred bucks over here and pay attention to it. If and that's your hobby. If that's your hobby, yeah. then, then go ahead. Yeah, it's your hobby. Okay. Uh, just like going to a casino might be somebody's hobby. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. It wouldn't be my hobby. I, sure. I, I don't, I don't I look at it and go, no. If the pros can't do it, if the highest paid... Uh, there's a pension study of 91 pensions, not one of them increased returns, not one of them, as a result of stock picking or market timing. Not wow, one of it them. It just seems like such um, undervalued information. I'll, you it, know what I mean? Everyone's trying to beat what you're just saying. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, the industry. You'll see that it's well up in the high 80% range of investments are managed on a market's fail or markets, market inefficiency philosophy. So it is very pervasive. Why is it so pervasive? Because of ego. I really believe I can do this. Mm -hmm. I know these guys can't do it out there. I just, I just really think I can do it. Or because, you know, those, these, these biases, mm -hmm. you know, past performance. I know it's no indication of future performance, but this, the stock market's going up. No, it went up. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's going to do tomorrow. Or tomorrow's head. So, you know, yeah. or, you know, I don't know what it's going to do over the next week. I don't. I really don't know. I can't tell you what it's going to do, but I can tell you all day long what it did in the past. So, in, in our emotions, greed takes over. Uh, fear. Sometimes I get scared and I hear something bad in the media and I pull all my money out of the stock market. So it gets down to the psychology, really. Mm -hmm. Again. Yep. Um, stocks are down in the last. I don't know. Was it last week? Uh, is that partly because of the chatter going around about Biden's changing the capital gains tax or why are stocks down last week or do you pay zero attention to that? Uh, they were down the first part of the week, but they were up in the second part of the week. Oh, okay. So uh, there's new in some areas. Some And I always send somebody say stocks. And I say, what area? You know, uh, you sure. had actually small companies are up and large companies are down. The Dow's down and you have small companies up. That's that dissimilar price movement. So it's all different areas in the market. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, you know, people do that all the time. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, can you clarify? I think you said if you look back at any 30-year period. Yes. Since, say, the 1926. Time, since 26, the Great Depression. Yep, prior. Any 30-year period since stocks have returned an average of 10%? This is large U.S. stocks. So if you look at large U.S. stocks, 1926 to 1955, that 30-year period. 30, about 10.2%. 1927 to 56, it's like, you know, just around 10%. And 1928, to, and you look at every single rolling 30-year mm. period, even 
And, and you look at that period of time I just named, 26 to 55. That includes the Great Depression, World War II, Korean War, some really bad stuff. Yeah. And the return was still 10%. Hmm. Now, for small companies, it's around 12 if I look for large value companies, about 11 and a half, 12. If I look at small value, it's actually 14. It's actually higher. International, this blows people's minds. Go all the way back in history and large U.S. stocks and large international stocks back to, you got British, large British companies back in the 1950s, we got data, 10% right in the same exact ballpark. Small international, small U.S., about the same return. So we find this is it's what we call out of sample. It doesn't just happen in the U.S. It happens in Great Britain. It happens in Germany. It ha so that's, where the, that's why Fama won the Nobel, mm. is because you had robust data, and it was out of sample. Mm. It happened everywhere. Mm -hmm. And he said he's on to something here. Hmm. So if I said to you, you know, look, man, I have X amount of money, and I'm going to put it into ETFs or mutual funds or a combination of the two, put it in the market in a pretty diversified manner. And I'm going to do that because I expect that 30 years, and I'm not going to touch it, mm -hmm. but 30 years from now, I expect that to have an average annual return for me of 10% per year. And that's my, that's my expectation. You would say, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it probably, probably a little bit higher if you're more diversified. Remember mm -hmm. I was just naming large U S stocks, which is the lowest performing of all those asset categories that I mm -hmm. named. Uh, why? Why are large U.S. companies where most Americans put all their money, unbeknownst to them? You know, you buy, you buy a total stock market fund, you think, I got the total stock market. No, it's capitalization weighted. It's weighted based on the size of the companies, and most of your money is in big companies again. Mm -hmm. You know, so people think that they're really diversified. Now, if I look at that area, say, well, why is that area lower returning than everything else? Because those companies are the biggest companies. They're the least risky. They're mm -hmm. the best known. Everybody likes them. And guess what? Because of that, they don't have to pay as much to use your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Um, are you being well? No, nah, with ETFs or mutual funds, it's not so much. I was just, I was just kind of curious if you like stocks that pay dividends, but that's not, that's not so much a thing with mutual funds and ETFs, is it? Those would be value companies. Value companies typically pay, pay more dividends. Why? Because their earnings are higher compared to their share price, the price of the companies. So the dividend is bigger. So okay. technically, yeah, historically, yeah, but do you want to put all your money in nothing but distressed companies? Probably mm. not a good mm -hmm. idea. A. B, it also goes against what Solomon said, put your money in the seven yeah. to eight places. <laughs> yeah, for some reason, I don't remember that in Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I love that book. Me too, um, yeah. It's such a great book. 11-2, go read it. Okay. Um, all right, you said something that was sort of blowing my mind a little bit, and I didn't even fully understand it at the beginning of this podcast. But you, it sounds like the 10% return may not be entirely coincidental. Mm -hmm. If you say one sixteenth of earnings yeah, plus 3% for inflation. Pay a dollar. To, okay, talk, that, pay. talk me through that and make sure that – try to explain earnings or P.E., ratio in a way that the listener who may not know anything about it might be able to understand it. Yeah, okay, so I have a company. I sell something. I have a cost of goods sold, so I sell cars. I have a cost of goods sold. I had to buy the metal. I had to buy the battery. I had to buy you know the engine, the tire, the rubber for the tires. I got a cost. I got to take that out of my sales that I made. Then I go, oh, I got to pay the employees to put the car together. That's my operating expenses. Uh, I got to pay interest because I borrowed some money, and I got to pay taxes. That gets me down to earnings. Now, what do I do with my earnings? Well, I go maybe pay a little bit of a dividend. You know, that pay some of the earnings back to the 
owner of my company, the shareholder, and I take and plow some of the other money back in. I have retained earnings, right? Mm -hmm. So I retain some of it. Just take that earnings number because I own the company. That, those are my earnings. I own stock. Remember, I'm you know most successful people in the world, company owners. Guess what? You get to be a company owner when you own stock. Isn't that mm -hmm. cool? Mm -hmm. So now I get the earnings of the company. What do stocks sell for? Well, $16 all the way through history. Now, large U.S. stocks right now as we speak are selling for about 25 because market's been kind of hot and there are all kinds of things that, you know, fairly nerdy as to why the price is a little bit higher because we're coming back from a pandemic. That's why. So the, the price will be a little bit higher. But let's go back to that 16 I pay 16 bucks. I get $1 of earnings over the next year is what we estimate their earnings are going to be. What if my earnings never change? I get a dollar this year and next year, the next year, the next year, the next year, on into eternity. My rate of return with my CD was $1 of interest for every 100 I put in. One 1%. divided by 100, 1%. What's one divided by 16? Because I'm going to get those earnings. Now they're going to fluctuate. You know, I may have 90 cents next year. The earnings may stink out. You know, I may have a buck 10. You know, it goes up and down. So hence, that's why stock markets go up and down. Mm -hmm. I never worry about a market decline. If the market goes down, what happened? Earnings went down or they're expected to go down. If they go down and I'm the CEO of that company, I'm going, oh, crud. <laughs> this is terrible. Earnings have gone down. Judy, I love you, but I'm going to have to lay you off right now because I can't afford to pay your salary mm -hmm. because the reason for a company to be in business is earnings. And I'm going to have to close down the factory. We can't do three shifts. We got to do only two or one. So they reduced the expenses. And when they reduced the expenses, the sales went down. They reduced the expenses and the earnings go back up. So mm -hmm. I never worry about a stock market decline for that reason. Now, get dollar $16 one divided by 16 equals 6.25 percent hmm. all right now add to that the earnings number that one goes up by three percent per year right now we get oh around 10 percent seems like a reasonable rate of return yeah for large u.s stocks hmm. now for a value company i'm not paying 16 bucks that company's distressed i'll only pay 10 one of earnings for every 10 is 10% now. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I'm at a higher starting number. Now if I have growth in earnings, oh, so that's why value companies have a higher expected return. Yeah. Cool? Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Okay, so if a you can buy a stock for $16 and it's expected to make you a dollar in earnings, that would be a, what, a 1 to 16 price earning ratio or 16 to 1? Yeah, it's that's called the earnings yield concept. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's what we call that is earnings okay. yield. One divided by 16. Now, if it's price to earnings, the price, the P on, is on top, P, it, which you've yeah. probably heard of before, price yep. to earnings ratio, 16 to 1. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hmm. Somehow I successfully made it to 36 years old without ever having hear, heard that in my life. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's all right. a pretty cool little bit of information. Oh, man. Now, you know, do you I, think I was a broker for 10 years, which is even worse, and they didn't teach you. You would think that would be the first thing that they teach as a broker. You yeah. Think, Why? I mean, you're working for a major, major firm. No, get out there and sell stuff. That yep. was the job. So sure. a lot of people have been burnt by investment people in the past, and they don't know why. They were burnt because the investment advisor wasn't taught this stuff. They were taught to sell stuff. Sure. Yep. If you're selling a mutual fund, how do you sell it? Oh, well, this fund had a really good track record, Mrs. Jones. And, you know, you go and sell the track record on the fund when I know that markets go up and down and, they are, and Mrs. Jones is buying high. Mm -hmm. And then she gets burnt and loses money and goes, what happened here? 
That's what happened. Yeah. Bad training. Do you generally recommend that people move money around, say, when, you know, a Republican president versus a Democrat or a Democrat versus a Republican or capital gains are going to go up or down? Like, just just don't pay attention to that and just leave it in. Is that what you recommend? Yeah. Now, there is some movement that takes place in a portfolio, but you don't do it based on that. Because what you're doing is you're assuming that you know something nobody else knows. I'm going to get rid of it because a Democrat's coming in. Well, what are you saying? That it's overpriced right now and that Democrat is going to, you know, well, everybody else knows that that person's getting into office. Or let's say you don't like Republicans. There are studies that show that Republicans don't like Democratic administrations and, and Democrats don't like Republicans. And they, they just, they don't want to invest. Mm. And they'll flow their money out of the stock market. Huge mistake because markets go up under either. Uh, you know, so the reality of it is it's a really bad way of doing things. Now, mm -hmm. when do you do you change the portfolio? Well, you know, if you have one area of the markets, I'm supposed to have 10 percent of my money here and I'm supposed to have 10 percent of my money in this asset, this area, small companies, let's say small companies, large companies and large companies just knock it out of the out of the park. They just have a great year and it's 15 percent. And this has a terrible year. It's five. Well, I should sell some of this 15, bring it back down to 10 and buy this five and bring it back up to 10. Why? Because I'm timing the market? No, because it's out of balance and my risk is higher. Oh, I see. My portfolio is, is out of whack. Mm -hmm. you know, so that's why you do it. And then there are other things that happen. You know, Like, for example, small companies become medium-sized companies. They need, need to be moved out of the portfolio. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on the money that the government is spending, and particularly as to upcoming inflation? Are you concerned about that? Mm. Um, what do you think? Okay, so I mean, I, I've, I've, I mean, have you seen them spend money like they have in the last year? I mean, this is somewhat. Well, yeah. yeah, I have. You have, <laughs> but yeah, that's a velocity of money thing, and it's really, it's, it's fascinating. It's very, very nerdy stuff. But let me give you a really simple answer to it because it would probably your your listeners would probably appreciate this better. What is inflation? It's prices going up. Who's raising prices? Companies. What do I own when I own stocks? I own the entities raising prices. So if today $1 is sufficient for me to live on, let's say, or 16 or, you know, whatever, uh, let's just use that because we've been running with that number <laughs> the whole mm -hmm. time. And, and, and in the future, it's going to take $10 and the ratio remains the same. It's going to be 1 to 16, mm -hmm. 10 to 160. So therefore, yep. you see how the price kept up with inflation and protected me. Totally. But again... If you are barely scraping by, not making a living wage, invested in nothing, have zero assets, mm -hmm. inflation is not kind to you. No, it's not. Because bread goes up and so does milk, and you have no assets that went up like that. Those are the people that get hurt the most with inflation, correct? Yeah, yeah it, it's true. And, you know, this is where psychology comes in again. And sometimes what happens with people is they don't ask for what, they're, what they deserve or mm -hmm. what they're worth. And, you know, sometimes I, I was reading an article the other day that people just, they're, they're hesitant. They don't want to go and ask for a raise. And it was a study of women. And some women just did not ask for a raise mm -hmm. where the guys did. And it was just a matter of going, no, the women that actually just went and asked for the raise, they actually got it. Mm -hmm. And it was just a matter of having a sense of self-worth. And that's why I think psychology is so important because God doesn't make junk. Mm -hmm. We're all, you know, we're all worthy people. Yep. And when you have inflation, you know what? It would be a pretty heartless person that didn't understand why you came to them and asked for a raise mm -hmm. when you have prices going up all around you. Yep. And if they don't give you a raise and you really truly are worth the money, 
go someplace else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easier said than done sometimes, but, you know, that's the idea. Yep. My understanding is that we don't expect rampant inflation upcoming, even with all the money, money that they've printed, because supply is so great in relation to demand. We have so much manufacturing. We're so advanced. We barely have enough of mm. demand. Like we're mm-hmm. selling to other countries just to keep our, we have so much supply. Mm-hmm. And because of that, inflation is not expected to skyrocket. Is that, does that touch on the velocity of money that you were talking about? Or is that a different? No, velocity of money is a different thing. And it's, okay. it's a fascinating concept. And so let's say if I got $100,000 and I'm going to stick it into a bank and the bank holds a reserve requirement of ten grand, And then they take the other 90 and they lend it back out. And then that money flows to the economy and 70 goes back in the bank and they hold 7,000, 10% of that. Mm-hmm. They take the other 63,000, they lend it back out and it becomes 50,000 is flowing through the economy. And then... 50,000 goes back in the banking system. They hold five, 45, and that happens on average eight to 10 times. So that's velocity of money. So what happens is, that's what Jimmy Starr was trying to explain to people in the, uh, in the bank, mm. you know, when he was saying, hey, Potter's not panicking. You know, your money's not here. It's over in Joe's house. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is this, is that right now what's happening is they're pumping money. You got M1 and you got M2. M1 is like your checking accounts and and cash and things like that. Well, M2, which is a different measure of money supply, is like deposits on in your bank accounts and it's deposits like in your your mutual funds that you own and stocks that you own and those types of things. That money supply actually is not growing that fast, as fast as you might think. Why? Because the velocity of money has been slowing down. And that is the money that isn't necessarily that seen money. Mm-hmm. So that's partially why we're not seeing as much inflation. Okay. What has slowed that velocity down right now? Uh, you know, it, it, there are a lot of reasons, possibly. One is government interference and in things. You know, when you have taxes or you have, uh, you know, let's say that there are, well, a pandemic might slow it mm-hmm. down to some extent, mm-hmm. you know, but those types of things. Okay. That makes sense. Fadi Busamara was telling me about that the other day. Yeah, this is a couple weeks ago now. He was using the exact words, and I had forgotten the concept. But it made sense when he was explaining it, how we don't need to be too concerned about inflation. And I'm really not. And yet, last weekend, I bought two sheets of OSB, $45 a sheet. It very well could be a short-term thing, though. That is, I think what that is, is because of lumber shortages right. with the pandemic and all of this. So I think, I think it's that, exactly. Yeah. That, it's, it's shortage, not inflation, when you're paying 45 bucks for OSB right now, correct? Yeah, a lot of it is. And how do you actually view inflation? How, what's a good measure of it? Long-term interest rates. Now, the Fed actually mm. controls short-term interest rates. Long-term government bonds are between 2 and 3%. You know, so that shows you if people are willing to lend the government money for 30 years at that low of an interest rate, that, and and this is the beauty about market efficiency. Market efficiency is everybody in the world. Nobody knows really what's going to happen. But all of us collectively have a lot of information, enough so that we can come up with a proper price for a stock, mm. you know, because we take all of what I know and what you know, and, and, and what we do is we take that information, we decide what, what to pay for something. So fascinating study on efficiency, which is crazy. You have a big thing of jelly beans, monster jar of jelly beans, and you have all these people, how many jelly beans are in this jar? And, you know, somebody says, well, 250, one person says 500, you got thousands of people betting and it's all over the place. You know, they're they're everywhere from 1200 to 250. 
And what they ended up finding is they counted the jelly beans. The average of all the guesses was within a couple jelly beans of the number in there. And they said, you know, collectively, you know, individually, we're idiots. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> but fascinating. But collectively, we have the information that causes us to pay the proper price for stocks, causes us to pay the proper interest rate for long-term bonds. That is a great way to understand market efficiency. Wow, that's very fascinating. Another hmm. example I'll give you. Challenger. Challenger takes off space shuttle and it explodes. Several people passed away in that, in that accident. The stock market's open, and there were f- like four companies that were involved in making the parts that made the Challenger. Three of them, the stock price went down 2%. One of them went down 11%. Guess which one? The company that made the O-rings dropped more than the rest of them. Why? Because the market figured out in just a couple minutes what it took Congress six months to figure out Mm. was that it was the O-rings that were the cause of the disaster. Wow. The market was that efficient at figuring that out so quickly. And that's a a long time ago. Now we get information even faster. Yeah. Yeah, we do, particularly if you're in... um Congress. Sometimes you get information and you make yeah. money moves before everyone else, anyone else knows and about it. You know it. what? There are, studies, there are studies done of Congress people trading stocks, even though they had inside information on things going on, and they still couldn't beat the market. Well, that's good. I'm happy okay. to hear that. <laughs> um, all right. What else, Paul? What else you want to hit? Oh, man. I think we hit a lot of territory. Yeah, we did. I'm grateful for it. Uh, um, you know, I think, you know, from one, one thing is take advantage of retirement plans in work. I think one, one good thing to tell you listeners is retirement plans, retax plans, retirement 401ks, 403bs, those types of things are really good because the way a retirement plan works is this. Our tax system, you have some income, you pay taxes at a 10% rate, zero, some zero, because you have a standard deduction, some 10, some 12, some 22, 24, on up to 37. When you're working, you're taxed at the highest rate that you are actually exposed to. So whatever your next dollar is coming out, whatever your tax, your marginal bracket is, is you're going to be taxed at that. So let's say that it's for this person 24%. When you get to retirement, you're not working anymore. What's your tax rate? Zero. So when you pull money out of retirement plans, some is taxed at zero, some at 10, some at 12. So you can have this downward movement of tax rates from your, t- your high marginal rate down to your average rate in retirement. Mm-hmm. That's one of the beauties of retirement plans, workplace retirement plans, plus the match, plus the fact that also when you put money in a 401k or, or a retirement plan or an IRA or something like that, it's creditor protected. You know, so if you get sued, they can't come and take that asset from you. You know, there there really? are very very limited, yeah, very limited circumstances where you can actually lose those assets. Oh wow! You know, so creditor protection. So you know, for that, that's one thing. And and you know, the beauty of it, the retirement plans, they're automatic. You go and have it come out of your paycheck, and you don't think about it. It's just, it's gone. It's mm-hmm. that, you know, like the richest man in Babylon. You know, go and pull the money out mm-hmm. and, and yank it out, and then it's gone, and then you just spend the rest. And yep. you're saving first, and you're spending the rest that's left over. Yep. So it's a good way to get ahead. So maximize. So one general broad recommendation you would have for anyone listening is maximize retirement. Yeah. Um, investing into your retirement funds, IRA, 401k, whatever it happens and to be. And if you're in a super, super, super low tax bracket now, and you're likely to be in a higher one in the future, that's where Roth 
comes in. Mm -hmm. Roth types of IRAs and 401ks yep. come in. Okay. Yeah. Any other kind of final, just want to leave some money management tips with people? Like, is there anything else that comes to mind? Oh boy. I think we, I think we covered most of them, you know, yeah. Live invest within on purpose, your means. you know, yeah. you know, just, and that doesn't mean investing in companies that you think are doing purposeful things. Mm -hmm. I mean, just invest and think, you know, my money is there to help me express what I value in life mm -hmm. and always think that way. And then you don't get sidetracked by trying to impress people that you don't like with money that you don't have and, and get pulled into that downward spiral because there's always going to be somebody that has a newer car, a nicer car than you, a nicer house than you, a nicer, whatever. And envy is the killer of financial security. Oh, yeah. Envy is a killer of a lot of things, yeah, it is. particularly contentment and well-being. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but you're right, actually. Man, if you could pull envy out of the equation, we would fix a lot of our financial problems yeah, at a personal we, level. We really would. It for is. sure. It, it's bad. Um, I always like to ask people if there's a, a principle or a practice or even a pleasure that you live your life by or have found useful or helpful or anything along a principle practice or pleasure you'd like to share with our listeners in closing? Yeah. I think that anytime you're in business, anytime you're in business, it, I always tell my guys, don't worry about making money. Don't worry about what you're going to earn. I tell them to love on people, take care of people. Everything else will fall into place. Mm -hmm. Great. Paul Winkler. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Great.